Well, thanks so much for coming out to our annual Hot Topic. Uh, we've been doing these Hot Topics basically since the beginning of our women's ministry. Uh, our first women's Bible study, we went through the book of Colossians. And we didn't do the Hot Topic at that time, but after Colossians, we went through James. And at the end of James, we decided to look at a hot topic. Uh, at that time, there was a book out, uh, teaching out called The Secret. It was like, you know, the law of positive attraction and how you could kind of think what you wanted to have and to be. And we looked at that book and showed why that was not biblical and kind of set the pattern of doing these hot topics at the end of our Bible study every single year. So we've looked at all sorts of different things. We've looked at other books like The Shack and Jesus calling. We've looked at authors like uh, Rachel Hollis and Rob Bell, topics like abortion and politics and God's design for sex and all sorts of different things. So I think this is our 16th hot topic. Uh, I, I don't know, 16, I think. Maybe I should go back and do a recount. Maybe it's the 15th. But this hot topic we're titling Equal and Different. And we're going to explore uh, God's good design for women. Uh, before we do that, um, let me ask you a few questions. Uh, if you could tell me what you think the word is that is pictured in this definition or defined by this definition, uh, the first one is which word would you use to describe something that is deeply respectful, uh, causes you to be afraid or terrified? Any guesses? Awesome is a good guess, yes. 14th century, the word was awful. So close. The word was awful. If something was awful, it was deeply respectful. Now I can say, you know, that grilled cheese sandwich you made was awful. And it, it has a different meaning. Uh, what about this one? Uh, something that's based on fantasy or not real. It is, in the 14th century, it was the word fantastic. So if I say, whoa, you got a job, that's fantastic, right? I mean, I'm not saying that's not real, that's based on fantasy. Or what about this? In 1538, what do you think the term was to describe a really nice guy, a fine chap, a sweetheart? It was the word bully. Can you imagine if I said to my daughter, I'm so glad you're dating a bully. <laughs> this is wonderful. Uh, words evolve and change over time. Uh, the meaning of words evolve and change. We've seen with the advent of technology, uh, words kind of evolving into different things like the cloud is now a place where information is stored off of your computer or a text is no longer a document that you study, but it's a message that you send from one cell phone to another, right? Or a tweet is not simply a word, uh, sound that a bird makes. It is 144 characters or less that you post online to let people know what you think or believe. Uh, and add to that, uh, this is just my thing. So if you do this, don't feel bad. But add to that, I find it so strange now that things have kind of changed and evolved so much that when a woman is expecting, her husband will run out and say, we're pregnant. I don't know if you've heard that, but to me, I think, really? Uh, the first time I heard a man say, we're pregnant, I did a double take. You're, you're pregnant? I, I, it's, it's amazing how this is evolving and changing. 
uh, Dad, really? You're pregnant? You, uh, I think you can eat and drink whatever you want without getting nauseous. Uh, I have a feeling you can sleep in any position you want, whether it's on your back or your side or even your stomach. Uh, your body parts aren't swelling, including your hands, your feet, your ankles, and maybe even your ears, as mine did. I'm sure they did. Uh, your skin isn't stretching and tearing as the child inside you grows, because, Dad, no offense, but you're not pregnant. You're not pregnant. You're not thinking about how this growing child is going to exit your body one day, because you don't share a uterus with your wife. And that is a good thing. That's part of God's design, and we applaud that. We love that. But I fear that uh, terms like we're pregnant, and you know, I've heard we're nursing now. <laughs> wow, what does that look like? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, including these, these men and women in the process, so great, Dad, that you're on board with your wife. But again, I fear that it's a reflection of the cultural shift for us to move away from God's distinction in genders, from God's distinction in genders, saying that God has created male and female and that we're different in biology and in function and role as well. Now, if you agree with what I just said, that God has created male and female and we're different in biology and in function as well, you agree to what is called complementarianism. Uh, that's called complementarianism. It's the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement, it doesn't mean say nice things about, but to complement, to complete each other. Uh, Al Mohler says, complementarianism is the affirmation of biblical doctrine that there are distinct roles for men and women, both in the home and in the church. Now, you may wonder where did that word complementarianism come from? Is it in the Bible? No, you won't find it in the Bible, just like you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. But we know that the Trinity is a true truth. We look at the Bible from cover to cover, and we see that God is one in three persons. We also see that God has a, a created design for both men and women. He has designed them to be equal and different. And you might think, I thought this was a hot topic. That doesn't seem like super confusing or controversial, but you know what? It is. It's incredibly controversial right now. So the first point for you is just realize that God's design for men and women or complementarianism is under attack. It is under attack right now. And not only by the world, but by the church as well. Uh, this began a while ago, and because of this attack, scholars like John Piper and Wayne Grudem got together and met in Danvers, Massachusetts with other leading scholars and drafted a statement on biblical womanhood and manhood. They called that the Danvers Statement because they were in Danvers, Massachusetts. And after that, they went on to incorporate as the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And you can find them at cbmw.org. 
They also went on to uh, edit a book of essays called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh, that was published in 1991. It was called The Book of the Year by Christianity Today in 1992, and we currently carry it at Compass Books. Well, around the same time that uh, they were coming out with the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, there were other groups that were coming out with the opposing view. Uh, groups like Christians for Biblical Equality that were established to say that there is no distinction in leadership between men and women in the church and in the home. And if you believe that, you believe what's called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is the view that teaches that in Christ there are no gender distinctions anymore. Uh, the word egalitarian is French from the word, the Latin word meaning equal. So no, no distinctions anymore in function between the genders. Uh, they would say because all believers are one in Christ, men's and women's roles are interchangeable both in the home and in the church. Now recently, last year, uh, author Amy Bird came out with a book, not Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, but Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And this was published in May of 2020, and she basically suggests that it, we're at the point of time in the church where we need to rethink this whole concept of biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, she also has a nine-part series through Zondervan Master Lectures uh, where she explores the feminine voice in scripture as synergistic with the dominant male voice. So she tries to put more attention on females and the female voice even within the scripture. Uh, and actually three weeks ago, uh, Beth, Beth Allison Barr came out with a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, it was released just three weeks ago, and it's already Amazon's number one bestseller in Christian church history and Amazon's number one bestseller in gender, sexuality, and religious studies. Uh, she combines her doctorate in medieval studies with her experience as a pastor's wife, and she goes on to uh, reveal through her book her very popular book, it's well written too, uh, how complementarianism is wrong. Uh, she says in her book, by staying silent, that is regarding complementarianism, I had become part of the problem. Instead of making a difference, I had become complicit in a system that used the name of Jesus to oppress and harm women. She says, and the hardest truth of all was that I bore greater responsibility than most in our church because I had known that complementarianism, complementarian theology was wrong. And then add to that, we have another uh, big voice that's jumped into the mix, and that is Beth Moore. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of her before. They say when you think of Bible studies in America or women's Bible studies, you think of Beth Moore. Uh, she's a prolific author. She sold millions of books. And she's now publicly jumped in to the controversy. Uh, just a month ago, she posted on Twitter, which caused a great stir. Uh, she said, when you functionally treat complementarianism, and then she defined it as a doctrine of man, 
man as if it belongs among the matters of first importance as a litmus test for where one stands on inerrancy and authority of Scripture, you are the ones who have misused Scripture. You went too far, uh, speaking to those who would be on the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And then she also said, I beg your forgiveness where I was complicit. I could not see it for what it was until 2016. I plead your forgiveness for how I just submitted to it, complementarianism, and supported it and taught it. So uh, she is now saying that she's pulling herself away from complementarianism. And again, this has created a huge controversy. Uh, immediately, Amy Bird uh, tweeted in great response of uh, Beth's declaration. And Beth Moore uh, promoted Beth Allison Barr's book. And Beth Allison Barr went on to make a declaration regarding what Beth Moore had said. Uh, Beth Allison Barr said, Beth Moore has just declared the beginning of the end of complementarianism. And on the briefing in response, Al Mohler said, I don't think so. <laughs> so where do we go from here? I mean, this is incredibly controversial right now. And even though you may have never heard of these things, you will hear of these things. So it's important that you get your, your boxes checked in your mind, complementarianism, egalitarianism, where do we stand and why? And where we're going to go to determine where we stand is to the Bible. I mean, that's what we do in the Hot Topics. We try to look at the Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say about this? What are the opposing arguments, and how do they fall when we compare them to the teaching of Scripture? So we are going to examine the opposition's arguments. We're going to examine the opposition's arguments. Uh, in Acts 17.11, when Paul went into Thessalonica, he said that the Jews there were... He actually went into Berea. He said that the Jews that were there in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they did what we're going to do. They examined the arguments and they went to see if these things were so. So I have tried to put this into gist of the concepts that would be great. Uh, but the first argument, the egalitarian argument, so to speak, is that women and men have equal worth before God. Women and men have equal birth, worth before God. Uh, they cite scriptures like Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created two sexes, male and female, and they were created both in his image, therefore both equal before him. And then the New Testament teaching, uh, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 3, 27, 28, 27 begins, as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you have welcome access to Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, there's neither slave nor free, doesn't matter what your economic status is, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So they are saying that women and men have equal worth before God. And you know what? We agree. We wholeheartedly agree with that. Women and men do have equal worth before God, and that is what the scripture teaches. Easy enough, right? 
Well, the next one's gonna get a little more tricky, and the one after that is even a little more complicated. So kind of put your seatbelts on and see if you can track with me through this. Again, don't feel like you've gotta get everything down. The second one here, uh, the egalitarian argument would be that women and men differ only in biology. That means they would agree, yes, we differ in biology, but we do not differ in function and in role in the church and in the home. Uh, I will look at why they say that, and then we'll look at if we agree or not. Uh, they say that because uh, their, their argument is that you see women in prominent leadership positions from cover to cover throughout the scripture. Uh, and you do. Uh, you see Deborah, for example, in Judges 4 and 5. She was judging Israel. I mean, she was leading in Israel, both men and women at the time. You see Huldah. She was the prophetess. She's uh, written about in 2 Kings 22, also the same account in 2 Chronicles 34. Uh, the young King Josiah wanted to get the nation back to following God. He was broken about the sins in Israel, and they went to hear from the Lord, and they went to the prophetess, Huldah, and she spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, in the New Testament, we have Martha and Mary. We have this great picture of what it means to be a woman and to be a follower of Christ in Luke 10, 38 through 42, where we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, uh, breaking cultural norms, literally, sitting there in the position of a disciple. And we know that Jesus applauds her for that. And he affirms the fact that women are to be taught and trained the same way that men are. And then we have uh, Mary Magdalene and other women who were the first to uh, go to the tomb and hear that Jesus was risen from the dead and even charged to go back and tell the other disciples. And then add to that, and this is a big one that egalitarians are using right now. It is a big one, so it's important that we're just aware of this. You don't have to explain all the nuances, but just that you're aware of what's going on here. Uh, Romans 6, 1 through 15 is a big part of their argument. Uh, in Romans 6, 1 through 15, Paul closes the letter there to the church at Rome with these uh, closing greetings to key people. And I'm not going to read through all of them, but I do have highlight the names of women in this list. There are 28 names in total, and 10 of the 28 happen to be women, which is a significant amount. That's a, a third of the people that are mentioned there are women. And this is important in the egalitarian argument. It was just Monday that Beth Moore tweeted, uh, sisters, for your examination, encouragement, and courage, do some research on Romans 16, where Paul sends greetings to both men and women who were laid bring faithful for the gospel. True. Uh, she adds, these sisters weren't just packing the brothers' lunch kits. Okay, well, way to dis hospitality ministry, right? Which is very important. Thank you if you serve in hospitality. Uh, it makes a huge difference. But uh, just citing the fact that this Romans 16, 1 through 15 is a very key argument right now. And really, when she's saying to do your homework, do your research, the research really pertains to three key women in that list. So let's look at that really quick. Uh, the first woman would be Phoebe. Romans 16, 1 and 2. 
uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. So this word here, servant, uh, it's the Greek word diakonos. It's diakonon in the Greek there. It's in the female form, and it can be translated as a deacon. Uh, so whether she was in the official role of a deacon or not, uh, we don't know. Uh, we would believe here at Compass that women can and do serve as deacons, as key ministry leaders. But uh, even complementarian Doug Moo in his commentary on the epistle to the Romans says that she was probably the person who carried Paul's letter to the church at Rome, which is a huge responsibility and a wonderful thing. I mean, you think about it, Romans has been called the greatest, you know, doctrine, the greatest treaty on salvation ever penned by a human, and Phoebe is carrying it to the church at Rome. So that's amazing and wonderful. Uh, also, in verses 3 through 5 of Romans 16, we see Prisca and Aquila. Well, Prisca is just the shortened form of Priscilla, uh, just like Steph or Stephanie, we shorten names. So he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives next for me, for my life. Uh, I give them thanks, and so do all the churches of the Gentiles. So this word um, for fellow workers, soon ergus, uh, it is one who works together with. And what's so interesting about Priscilla is that in Acts 18.26, Priscilla and her wife Aquila together uh, explained the gospel to Apollos, who went on to be a great orator for the church. Uh, the word there explain is ectithemai, and it's in the plural, meaning both together they explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately, which is wonderful. They worked together as they met with this man, and they shared the gospel with him. And then finally, in Romans 16, 7, the third one here is junia. Uh, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, this one's really uh, controversial. Uh, some people say that Junia is not really a female, that it's a male, but I think that the text and the research would bear out that Junia is uh, a female, that this is a woman here. Uh, now, what's so controversial is the part that I have italicized there. They are well-known to the apostles. Uh, this well-known is the Greek word episemoi, and it's either outstanding, prominent, or well-known. And then that phrase, to the apostles, in tois apostolois in the Greek, is either among the apostles or to the apostles. So if you think about that for a second, there's a, a notable difference there based on how you translate that. Was Junia well-known to the apostles or was she outstanding among the apostles, prominent among the apostles? Do you see the difference there? One would say like she's well-known to the apostles, like she's got a great reputation even before the apostles. The others would be she is outstanding or she is a leader in the group of apostles, uh, making her an apostle herself. Um, Daniel Wallace, he's written the Greek grammar books that 
lots of seminaries and colleges use for Greek grammar. Uh, after doing much language work, he said, we must conclude that Andronicus and Junia were not apostles, but were known to the apostles, uh, consistent with the ESV translation, not based upon his biases, but him trying to do honest exegetical work there. Uh, even if, let's say that Junia was prominent among the apostles, this is not apostle with a capital A, which Pastor Mike has taught us about, and I don't think that even if that were the proper interpretation, uh, outstanding or prominent among the apostles, the sent ones, that that is going to change complementarian theology. But uh, Beth Allison Barr says, most people who attend complementarian churches that's us, right? So most of us don't realize that the ESV translation of Junia, as well known to the apostles instead of prominent among the apostles, was a deliberate move to keep women out of leadership. That's a strong and serious accusation. You're saying that the ESV translation team, without real fear of God, right, mistranslated the Greek text to keep us out of leadership. Remember, Beth Moore said that complementarianism was a doctrine of man, a man-made doctrine, not based on biblical law and principle, but created by man. That is, again, a serious accusation. And Denny Burke, the president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, responded by saying, I take this man-made doctrine charge very seriously. And then he goes on to cite Matthew 15, 7 through 9, where Jesus said, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of man. So Jesus would say, It is not right if you are teaching man-made doctrine. Uh, Denny Burke continues in his response to Beth Moore's declaration. Uh, this claim that complementarianism is man-made, it is a myth. He says complementarianism, the term is relatively new, but it is coined to refer to an ancient teaching that is rooted in the text of Scripture. So we have to say, is this really rooted in the text of Scripture? Does God really say there are different roles for women and men in the church and in the family, and is that rooted in Scripture? Well, uh, the first place that I'd like to look, and there are many verses we could go to, but for the sake of time, we're just going to do a few. Uh, the first one is Titus 1, 5, and 6. Uh, this instruction to Titus to putting things in order in the church. Uh, Titus 1, 5, and 6, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Okay, so this is what these elders, pastors, overseers are to look like. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. I mean, that's what the text literally says, the husband of one wife. That's going to be hard to be a woman, right? And be the husband of one wife. Uh, the same teaching is found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, uh, where Paul instructs Timothy in the same way. This is how you set up uh, pastors, elders, teachers in the church. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, pastors, elders, teachers, overseers here, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, the same thing here. 
It's going to be hard to be a woman and to be the husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. If you think, oh, okay, I get that, but I'm really not seeing the man thing here. Okay. Right before this, the verses right before this, the five verses right before this, uh, in contrast to this man being the husband of one wife, being an overseer, being able to teach, that would be both men and women, uh, Paul said to Timothy, right before that, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That is right before, if you want to set up an overseer, pastor, elder, he is going to be an overseer, exercise authority, and he is going to be able to teach. And I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That is what the text says. And for those that would say, well, that's just cultural. That's not a, you know, a principle that's true for us today. That was a cultural thing there that had to do with the church at Ephesus and this you know, conversation with Paul and Timothy. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit has uh, caused these authors to add into these texts the fact that this is rooted in God's design and creation, where he takes it back to Adam and Eve. And we could, you know, spend a long time looking at the passage and exploring what the passage means, but we can't ignore the fact that the argument is rooted in God's design in creation. And if you think, you know, that's not fair. That's not fair that women can't be pastors elders, overseers in the, in the church. Well, it's not fair, right, that men can't say that they're pregnant either. I mean, it's just God's design. This is God's design. God has designed us to be different, and it is a good thing. The Bible teaches that God has roles for leadership in the church and roles of leadership within the home. Uh, we see this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.22 would say to wives, wives, submit or yield to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then on the other side of that, the charge to men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see that, uh, that completeness there, the complement, the complementarianism where you have God's design for the wife in the home and God's design for the husband in the home. And again, if you say, yeah, but that's cultural, that must have had to do with Ephesus and what was going on there, again, Paul takes the argument back to the beginning, back to the very beginning, Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is all in the same dialogue and discussion, rooting it back to Genesis 2.24, which Paul is directly quoting from. Jesus quoted the same text in Matthew 19, speaking of marriage and divorce. This is an important text that takes us back to remind us that this is rooted in God's original design, pre-fall. This is in God's creation. Uh, in the Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the text says, in the Bible, differentiated roles for men and women are never traced back to the fall of man and women into sin. 
Rather, the foundation of this differentiation is traced back to the way things were in Eden before sin warped our relationship. Differentiated roles were corrupted, not created by the fall. They were created by God. And there are many, many more texts that we could look at, but we can see, I think, even from the ones that I just cited, that God has a specific design for men and women in the church and in the home. So the short answer to this response uh, is, you know, that women and men differ only in biology. The short answer would be no. The scripture reveals that men and women differ not only in biology, but in their roles in the church and in the home. And both differences were created by God. They weren't a result of sin. So the answer to that suggestion, that argument, would be that we disagree. Okay. I'm going to transition into another argument that's going to feel really different, but it is an argument that I think we need to be aware of. Uh, you don't need to be able to brilliantly articulate these things, but you will probably hear something about this in the future. So just be aware of this and put your seatbelt on. And then after we get through this next argument, it's all going to be easy, really fast and really easy. Okay, so there are two significant but related shifts that happen within evangelical theology that help seal biblical womanhood as gospel truth. And this is according to uh, Beth Allison Barr. Uh, she says, the championing of inerrancy and the revival of Arianism. Now, you might think, what in the world is she talking about? And that's why I think it's important that we look at that. The championing, championing of inerrancy and the revival of Arianism. Okay, what is inerrancy? Uh, she, before I, I, uh, before I tell you, let me finish her quote. She said, the concept of inerrancy made it increasingly difficult to argue against a plain and literal interpretation of women be silent and women shall not teach. That was the... 1 Timothy 2.12. The line between believing the Bible and believing a plain and literal interpretation of the Bible blurred. If Ephesians 5 told wives to submit to their husbands, the plain and literal interpretation demands that wives submit to their husbands. Those who disagree were not faithful to the scripture. So that's in the making of biblical womanhood. So as I read through the making of biblical womanhood, I, again, she's very smart. She writes very well, but I do see that she put more emphasis on culture and history than scripture and the um, recovering biblical manhood and womanhood uh, notes this in egalitarian writings. It says egalitarians often claim that we can't non cannot look to the Bible to settle these types of disputes. Rather, we should look to church history or elsewhere. Most of the new egalitarian arguments are rooted outside of the Bible and seek credibility through history, archaeology, and the manipulation of original Bible language. So she says that uh, this concept of inerrancy makes it difficult to argue against a plain and literal interpretation of women be silent. This concept of inerrancy. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that it is the inerrant word of God. Uh, there was a council in Chicago uh, that got together the, the um, 
council got together and created the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. Uh, two of my favorite um, scholars, theologians were there, R.C. Sproul and Francis Schaeffer, and they said the Bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms. Whether that relates to the doctrines of ethics, to the social, to the physical or the life sciences. Okay, so, whoa, what am I saying here? Inerrancy basically means that in its original language and when properly interpreted, the Bible teaches us truth. The Bible teaches us truth, and we would wholeheartedly agree with that, with this Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, that in its original language and when interpreted, correctly, the Bible teaches us truth. The truth of the Bible is truth. And um, Beth Allison Barr is saying that this passion for this inerrancy, that the Bible teaches truth, is what's led us to uh, be complementarians. And yeah, we would say, sure, we believe in the inerrant word of God. Uh, we would say, along with someone like Martin Luther, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God, right? We are going to line ourselves up with the text. Okay, now this one it has to do with the Arian accusation. And this is the one that gets weird, okay? But you will, you will get it. I think you will get it. Uh, the, this is the accusation that complementarianism hinges on heresy, okay? When, it's, when they, you know, someone says you, you believe in complementarianism because you believe you put too much weight in, on the inerrancy of scripture, we're going to say, yeah, sure, you're right. You know, call me someone who believes in Bible inerrancy. Yes, I do. Now they're going to say, okay, but you're a heretic. What you believe is heretical, uh, Beth Allison Barr and others have suggested that complementarianism is a rewarmed Arianism, which is a heresy. It's Arianism is the heresy that they accuse us of. Uh, remember, she said these two significant shifts happened, uh, the champion, championing of inerrancy and the revival of Arianism. Arianism. We do not believe in Arianism. Uh, no one on the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood believes in Arianism. Arianism is the belief that Jesus was created. We don't believe that. Uh, Arius was in the early fourth century and he said that Jesus was created by God, uh, that Jesus was the glory of creation. Arianism is the view that Jesus was a created being. He had divine attributes, but he was not divine in himself. Do you know anyone here at Compass that believes that Jesus was created by God and that he is not divine himself? No, because none of us are Arians. We are not Arians. We do not believe in Arianism. Uh, Arianism was condemned as heresy by the Council of Nicaea that was in 325 AD. And according to God, Questions Ministries is easily refuted by a fair reading of Scripture. Okay. 
Um, the problem with all of this really stems, stems back to something even deeper. And that is uh, people like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware, who are well-known voices on the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They're friends of ours, so to speak. Uh, we had Bruce Ware here teaching our Trinity class. He is an expert in the Trinity, a very godly man. Uh, she uh, points out that Grudem and Ware and others believe uh, in a view called the ESS. Okay, so this is the really hard part now. Just get ESS and, and just get that ESS is not Arianism. The ESS is the eternal subordination of the Son. It is a view that Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware and others uh, agree with, um, but it's not Arianism. Uh, we believe that God is one in essence and three in respect to persons. And uh, all Christians would believe that. Uh, ESS uh, would add that the subordination of the Son to the Father is uh, eternal. It's in the past and it's forward. And that's ESS. It's a view. It is not Arianism. Beth says it is Arianism. Uh, we believe that there is one God in three persons. John 1, 1 and 2. We can just totally see that truth here. One God, three persons. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We know He is revealed in John 1.14 where it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus, right? We could put Jesus here. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was God. He is God. One God in essence and he was with God, three gods in person. Three persons, one God. The doctrine of the Trinity right there. Uh, great theologians have always articulated this. This is the same view as Bruce Ware. Uh, R.C. Sproul says in his commentary on John, from all eternity, the Father sends the Son, and the Son is subordinate to the Father. The Son doesn't send the Father, the Father sends the Son. So even though the Father and the Son are equal in power and glory and being, nevertheless, there is an economic subordination of the Son to the Father. Now, if you can wade your way through all of this, do you see why this concept of one in S and three in persons uh, with the Father sending the Son and the Son uh, doing the Father's will, so to speak, would be a problem for egalitarians? Because you are equal and you're different, right? One God, three persons. One God, the same God equal with different functions, different roles. And that's what they're contending against. So that's the reason they do not like that. Uh, this is Beth Allison Barr. She says, it should not surprise us that evangelicals resurrected Arianism for the same reason that evangelicals turned to inerrancy. If Jesus is eternally subordinate to God the Father, women's subordination becomes much easier 
easier to justify. And you know what? The world now is jumping in on all of this. This whole thing saying this ESS, which is a view, it is not necessary to hold to the view of ESS to be a complementarian. But there are people on the uh, main side of complementarianism who do hold to ESS. It's a side issue. It is a side issue that they're trying to bring to the forefront. They're trying to call it Arianism and say, if you are a complementarian, you are a heretic. Uh, look at what the Washington Post just posted. The Washington Post just said this is on April 8th of this year. Uh, many have suggested that as Jesus is subordinate to God the Father, so women must be subordinate to men, a heresy for most Christians who view the three members of the Trinity as equal. It's gotten way out of control. Okay, we, are not, we do not believe in Arianism. We do not believe that Jesus was created. If anybody says that we do, we do not. You don't, uh, complementarians don't believe that. You don't even have to believe in the ESS view to be a complementarian, and let me show you that. Uh, this is Albert Muller. He says, recent charges of violating the Nicene Creed, remember where they said that the view of Arius was wrong, that Jesus was not created, made against respected evangelical theologians like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware are just nonsense. They are precisely the kind of nonsense that undermines orthodoxy and obscures real heresy. He's saying when you guys are doing this, you're taking the shift away from things that are truly heretical. I mean, this is not heretical. He says their teachings do not in any way contradict the words of the Nicene Creed, and both theologians eagerly affirm it. That would be the Nicene Creed. I do not share their proposals concerning the eternal submission of the Son to the Father. You know what Moeller's saying? Moeller is a well-known complementarianism. I don't agree with the view on ESS. doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with whether we believe in complementarianism or not. But I am well aware that nothing they have taught even resembles the heresy of the Arians. Done with that, in a nutshell, here's your answer. When someone says, if you are a complementarian, you are heretical, you believe in heresy, they're referring to ESS, which is a view. Uh, I'm leaning towards ESS, but I am not as brilliant as these people, so it's going to take me a lot more time to even really get there. But uh, ESS is not Arianism. We believe that God is one in essence, three in persons, as John 1, 1 and 2 would declare. Uh, and you don't have to believe in ESS to even be a complementarian. So when they say that, just say, you're wrong, you're mistaken. Uh, I don't even know what my view is on ESS, but it's not Arianism, and I don't have to believe in that to be a complementarian. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay, good. Okay, so the charge that complementarianism hinges on heresy, we would totally disagree with that. Now, the rest are super easy from here on out. You guys could get up and, and teach these next things. It's that, that's that easy for us. Uh, the argument would be that complementarians quench the spirit's work in women. They quench the spirit's work in women by not letting them take the office of uh, elder, pastor, overseer, right? Uh, for example, uh, Egalitarian Ben Withered, Weatherington says, the problem in the church is not strong women, but weak men who feel threatened by strong women and have tried various means, even by dubious exegesis, to prohibit them from exercising their gifts and graces in the church. 
I'm smiling because I'm thinking of Pastor Mike as a weak man, feeling threatened by strong women. Just, okay. Uh, so they're saying that we are, are, our roles, our opportunity, if you didn't get that, if I went too fast, <laughs> your opportunity to do the Spirit's work is quenched uh, by the fact that these weak men are not allowing you to take the office of pastor, elder, overseer in the church. Okay, uh, this is from the Danvers Statement. I'm going to read through this really fast, just even for the sake of drama here. But this is all that we can do as women. For example, with half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies that have heard the gospel, uh, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neuroses, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in, a, in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and the good of this fallen world. Whew. Okay, what he, the, the Danvers statement is saying, there is a lot to do, right? There is so much that we can do. We don't have to quench our gifts. We have different gifts. They cite here 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 21. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with that passage that says the body, the body of Christ does not consist of one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong, wouldn't make it less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong, wouldn't make it less a part of the body. There is a lot for us to do. We each have our unique and God-assigned roles. And we know even here at uh, Compass Bible Church, we have so much that we can do with our gifts as women. We have teaching opportunities, evangelism opportunities, administrative opportunities, prayer opportunities, outreach opportunities. It goes on and on and on. And you know what's funny? You know what I hear most of the time? Not that the Spirit's quenching my work because of our complementarian theology, but we have too much we have to do. I mean, I have too much. This church expects so much, right? There's too much that we're called to do. Uh, the short answer to that accusation is just show them your calendar. <laughs> if someone says, you know, you, the Spirit's work is being quenched in your life because you're a complementarian, it's like, really? Look at all the stuff I'm going to. Look at all the stuff I'm serving at. Look at all the stuff I'm doing for the glory of God and the good of Christ. So complementarians quench the Spirit's work in women? We disagree. We disagree. Last one. Last objection. Complementarianism promotes the abuse of women. That uh, complementarian theology would provide for or even be a catalyst to the abuse of women. Uh, Beth Allison Barr in her book says, we can no longer deny a link between complementarianism and abuse. Uh, the two go hand in hand. Uh, according to the Danvers statement, the husband is to forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Well, that doesn't sound abusive forsaking harsh and selfish leadership and growing in love and care for their wives. Uh, the, the scripture would say for men, men, listen to this, husbands, Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might present her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies 
He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Does that sound like a license to abuse? No. And add to that 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, after speaking to women, the text says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, that could mean weaker in strength or even more precious, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. God's saying, hey, your prayers are going to be hindered if you don't treat your wives in an understanding way, showing them honor. Does that sound like abuse? That's not abusive. That's not a setup for abuse. And you know, right before that, in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, that address to wives uh, is really showing wives how even if their husbands are disobedient to the word, they can win them over. So saying how wives should evangelize their husbands because ultimately our allegiance is to God and not to man. And we all know that. Our allegiance is to God. And if any man a pastor or husband or any man were to ask us to violate biblical law or biblical principle, our answer is no, right? No, we will not violate biblical law or principle or submit ourselves to abuse. Uh, Acts 5.28, when the apostles were charged to not speak in Jesus' name anymore, their response in 5.29 was, we must obey God rather than man. We will obey God and not man. And even in the church, if someone is abusive or sin is taking place, the Bible calls us to church discipline. And we practice church discipline in our church. If there is someone in sin, like it says in the bottom of 1 Corinthians 5, 2, uh, let him be removed from among you. They will be removed from the church. So sin in the church is not tolerated. Abuse is not tolerated. There's to be no covering up for sin. So complementarianism promotes abuse in women. The short answer is no. The Bible teaches that men should sacrificially love, provide for, and protect their wives. Uh, we all submit to Christ ultimately. We don't violate biblical law or biblical principle to yield to any man, any human. Uh, and church discipline keeps the body safe from sin. Complementarianism promotes the abuse of women. We disagree. So we've gone through the five. We agree with the first one. We disagree with the last four. And the next question is, of those five basic arguments, if we're going to disagree with 80% of them, what do we do when we disagree? We disagree respectfully. We disagree respectfully. And this is super important for us. Uh, listen to what the scripture says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And I love this passage. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Those are people that you disagree with, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, those you disagree with, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. We are to be kind. We are to be patient. We are to correct with gentleness. Even when others treat us disrespectfully, we are still called to do this. Kind, patient, gentle. That is what God is calling us to do. Sadly, um, 
Amy Bird was on the Roy's report with Julie Roy's, and they talked about the cyberbullying that had taken place because of her book. Uh, there were those that disagreed with her that began to bully her publicly on social media, uh, even leaders in churches. Uh, one church leader said to her on social media publicly, I wish her husband loved her enough to tell her to shut up. Okay, really? Uh, another one said, why can't these women take their shoes off and make us sandwiches? The church leader. Uh, another one said that she looked very butch and haggard. She's actually extremely beautiful. Uh, this is not right. This is not right to treat others disrespectfully because we disagree with them. To top that off, this egalitarian, complementarian debate, it's not even a primary issue. Uh, when we talked about uh, Albert Moeller's theological triage, when we were in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, we talked about how he explains that we have to take these debates and put them into buckets. The first bucket would be a primary debate, like if this is a debate uh, about something that if someone believes this, they will not be saved. Uh, then there's the secondary debates, and these are debates that are very important, the meaning and mode of baptism or women's roles in the church. And then there are tertiary debates. Tertiary debates are where we could all be together at the same church and have, you know, nuanced disagreements and be able to move forward with no problem. But according to Moeller and other respected theologians, women's roles in the church is a secondary issue. It's a secondary issue. That means it's a big issue. It's important, but it's not a salvation issue. It's not like if someone disagrees with us, you know, they'll be condemned forever in hell, separated from God. Albert Moeller said, complementarianism, the rightful ordering of the church and the home according to the roles for men and women is not a first order issue. I don't know of any responsible theologian who has ever claimed it is a first order issue. It is a second order issue. And yet, nevertheless, it is a second order issue, which for us means that we need to be in a church that we agree with on this topic. Uh, it doesn't mean that those who disagree with us are no longer brothers and sisters in Christ. They are. But we need to find a church that agrees what, with what we believe. Uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Uh, brothers, by the name of Jesus, agree. There be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And as this cultural push uh, causes churches to bend on this issue, it's going to be harder to, far, harder to find a church that agrees with you. But we need to be in a church that agrees with us. And for some people, that might mean you need to drive an extra 15 or even 30 minutes to find that church, but find that church. Find a place, a church, a family of God that is teaching the inerrancy of Scripture that is not bending on this issue. And not only is it important that our churches not bend on this issue, but we personally have to withstand the temptation to bend God's rules. That is the fourth point here. Because you will feel the pressure. 
Trust me, even as I was reading through these egalitarian books and, you know, some of them like by uh, Beth Allison Barr, these brilliant writers, there's, you feel this, you sense this push, especially as a woman, you sense this push. I want to be for women. I am for women. I love women. You know, go girls. Let's do this. It's great. But at the same time, I cannot discard the teaching of scripture regarding women's roles in the church and in the home. I remember uh, around the election uh, time between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, women like Michelle Obama were saying, if you don't vote for Hillary Clinton, you're going to vote against your own voice. You know, I personally didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. It had nothing to do with her gender. It was because I wasn't on the same page with her policy. And you know, there's this push where you want to identify with the gender and ignore the policy. And we cannot do that. We've got to stand up against that push and it gets hard, it really does. Uh, what does the text of scripture say? We've got to adhere to what the text of scripture says. I remember Paul in Galatians chapter one, writing that when there was this controversy concerning the gospel, you know, saying that there's this, dispute about the gospel. He said, you know, I am not here to be a servant of man or to please man. I am to please God. I am a servant of Christ. I cannot bend on this issue. And we can't bend either because there's a lot really behind all of this. There is a lot at stake. We could spend a whole hour doing really what's at stake in this area, but there is a lot at stake. One of the things that's at stake is God's design for marriage in general. I mean, God's design for marriage is so important. Uh, think about what Paul says here in Ephesians 5.32 when he's talking about marriage, the mystery of marriage. He says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Uh, there's something going on here with the differences in roles that needs to be preserved. Uh, we've got to teach our kids, you know, what marriage looks like. We've got to teach them that by living it out and acting it out, by, you know, being steadfast to hold fast to these things. And it is important that we teach our kids that God has assigned them a certain gender, uh, male or female, and that we need to live consistently with that. Uh, Deuteronomy, Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.9, speaking to parents, uh, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. We have got to make sure that we're standing up and not caving into the pressure to bend because we got to teach our kids too. There's going to be a lot of pressure put upon them by the culture to bend in this area. And we have to respectfully say we disagree. We believe that God created two genders, not only biologically, but with certain functions and roles as well. And you know, it's, uh, it's hitting another area too that we've got to be careful not to bend on. And that is that according to the Barna uh, Barna Group, the number of female senior pastors in Protestant churches has doubled in the past decade. Um, it's important that, you know, we don't bend into this pressure to yield to uh, the ordination of females as pastors, overs, elder seers in the church. Uh, we've got to hold on to this. 
um, I just heard of a local church that we would consider to be friends of ours who recently made the shift and ordained female pastors. So this turned out to be an incredibly hot topic because I just learned about that last week and had picked this out months ago. Uh, it's important that we be good with God's design, that we be content with our gender assignment, that God has specifically gifted us with this gender of being a woman. And we need to be content with that because remember, that is rooted in creation, this complementary relationship between men and women. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 11, and 12, uh, looking at this complementary relationship, uh, this completeness there. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. They complete each other. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all these, all things are from God. You know, just right after this, uh, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper in the church and then goes on to that topic that we already looked at about um, spiritual gifts. You know, and we think about it. We would say, okay, well, this is your gift. And someone, again, was, remember, we looked at the foot and the hand and the eye, uh, the different parts that God has assigned in the body. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, speaking of this assignment of gifts in the body, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Uh, it is the spirit that empowers them in everyone. Obviously, God has gifted us with our gender. It's an assignment from God. And just as we would tell people, you need to be content with the giftedness that God has given you, we need to be content with our gender as well. It's so important. Uh, even if you don't like your gender, you need to submit to God's design, the revealed will of God in the scripture. He has gifted us with certain things and he wants us to be content with those things. And not only content, but the final point here would be really joyful about it. Really, we're called to be, to enjoy being a woman. This is what God made us. And we need to enjoy the fact that we are women who have been assigned the gift of womanhood. Uh, there's an older book that I really like by Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, she wrote this in 1976. And I just think the title alone uh, is so telling. It's called, Let Me Be a Woman. You know, uh, let me be a woman. Let me just live consistently with God's design for women. And she writes this book to her daughter as her daughter's preparing for and approaching marriage. And there's a part that's, uh, it's poetic in the way that she writes it, but I like the way that she beautifully blends together uh, God's design for us both in biology and in function as women. Uh, she says, every normal woman, every normal woman is equipped to be a mother. Certainly not every woman in the world is destined to make use of the physical equipment. But surely motherhood in a deeper sense is the essence of womanhood. I mean, if we all look at our bodies, God has given us that biological equipment uh, to be mothers. And not all of us are mothers. And she's saying that's okay. But God has equipped our bodies in a certain way to reveal something even deeper about 
what he's called us to do. The body of every normal woman prepares itself repeatedly to receive and to bear. Motherhood, uh, the way that God has designed us in a sense, requires self-giving, sacrifice, and suffering. It is a going down into death in order to give life, a great human analogy of a great spiritual principle. Paul wrote, death works in us, but life for you. Uh, that concept of giving yourself up for the sake of someone else. Uh, you've seen that if you're a mother or if you know a mother, uh, the way that she will give of herself, even biologically, but also just in the way that she lives uh, for the sake of her child. And what a great and beautiful picture that is of our call to be women. She says, womanhood is a call. It is a vocation to which we respond under God. Glad if it means the literal bearing of children. Thankful as well for all that it means in a much wider sense. That in which every woman, married or single, fruitful or barren, may participate. Uh, this call to give ourselves up for the good of others. It just goes with our biology. Uh, she says the unconditional response exemplified, an example of this for all time, in Mary the Virgin. Remember the Virgin Mary, the young teenage girl saying, be it done to me according to your will. Uh, that is the call of womanhood, that ultimately we are surrendering to the will of Christ. God, it's not about me. Be it done to me according to your will. The willingness to enter into suffering to receive, to carry, to give life, to nurture, and to care for others, to enable others to do the role that God has called them to do as well. Uh, this strength to answer this call is given us as we look up toward the love that created us. God is love. His love far surpasses any notion of love that we could ever begin to understand. And he created us. And remembering that it was this love that first most literally imagined sexuality. God is the one who designed male and female that made us at the very beginning real men and real women. As we conform to that love's demands, we shall become more humble, more dependent, on him and one another, and even, dare I say it, more splendid. As we learn to live consistently, to enjoy our call to being a woman, in a sense, we become more beautiful. Uh, remember what 1 Peter 3 says, gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. Uh, we know 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, and we've received the gift of womanhood, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We need to use our gift of being women, uh, whether we're a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a Christian, just a woman. Employ and enjoy your gift by pouring yourself out for the good of others and the glory of God. Beth Allison Barr says, you've been freed, you're free to go. You are now released from these chains of, you know, differing roles in the church and in the home. The Bible says that we're free. 
Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to serve. We can serve our church and the leaders in our church. We can serve our husbands and our homes and our families. And this is a good thing. It aligns right with the call to be in Christ and the call to be a Christian. We know, as we saw in the beginning, that words and terms and concepts evolve over time. But you know what? Jesus said his word doesn't. Uh, Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's stick to what the Bible says and not cave in to the pressures and trends in culture. Because if we do, if we bend on these, then you know what? There's going to be another three verses that people want to bend on. And then another three after that. And the next thing you know, it's all downhill, right? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to take this time to just ponder the fact that your design in biology and function for men and women is currently under attack, uh, not only in the world, but in the church as well. God, I pray that you would help us to remember these five basic arguments and to be able to give a uh, short but intelligent response to each of those five arguments, especially as we are and will be presented with these in the future. I pray, God, when we disagree, that you would please help us to be kind and patient and gentle, to disagree respectfully, Lord, uh, that we would find a church that agrees with us in our view of complementarianism. I pray, God, that we would withstand the temptation to bend in this area, and the temptation is great and will go on to be greater, I believe. God, help us to not only be content with our gender assignment and help others to do so, but to truly enjoy, enjoy being women and just being able to be free to say we enjoy, we embrace God's design for womanhood. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus who made us women and saved us as women as well. And we pray in his name, amen.